0: Stay tuned for a word from the Lord. The Lord said through the prophet Ezekiel, I looked for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand in the gap on behalf of the land, so I would not have to destroy it, but I found none. In the name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, amen. On July 4th, 1776, the signers of the Declaration of Independence began a revolution which started the United States of America. The American Revolution was rooted in the belief that all people were subject to the law of God, even the king, that leaders are not above the law, that the government is not above the law, that not one person is above the law that everyone is endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights as expressed in the Declaration of Independence and later expanded in the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. Many people have sought to deny the fact that the founders of this nation created a country which wove together the idea of self-government with Christian principles. They've done their best to get rid of anything Christian anything biblical, anything which smacks of God from government and public life. And they've pretty much succeeded. I wonder what the founders of this nation would say if they could see us now. Here's what a few of them said. Patrick Henry, remember he's the one that said, give me liberty or give me death. He wrote, it cannot be emphasized too strongly or too often That this great nation was founded not by religionists, but by Christians. Not on religions, but on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Benjamin Franklin, of course we all know who he was, a key leader in the Constitutional Convention and inventor of so many things. He said, he who shall introduce into public affairs the principles of Christianity will change the face of the world. George Washington, our first president, and a very devout Anglican, by the way, said this, Let us with caution indulge the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion. Reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principle. John Adams, our second president, and very involved in the writing of the Constitution, wrote this, We have no government armed with the power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to govern any other. Thomas Jefferson, our third president, author of the Declaration of Independence and in no way an Orthodox Christian, wrote this. The reason that Christianity is the best friend of government is because Christianity is the only religion in the world that deals with the heart. James Madison, our fourth president, and also known as the father of the Constitution, wrote this. We have staked the whole of all our political institutions upon the capacity of mankind for self-government, upon the capacity of each and all of us to govern ourselves to control ourselves, to sustain ourselves according to the Ten Commandments of God. And then, John Quincy Adams, the sixth president. The highest glory of the American Revolution was this that it connected in one indissolvable bond the principles of civil government with the principles of Christianity. It cannot be but obvious. That the Christian faith was the bedrock of this nation from day one. But you would not know it today. Back for a little history lesson. After the revolution of 1776, it was not long before the new nation had departed from its biblical moorings. By the late 1780s and early 1990s, things got really bad. Drunkenness and alcohol became a serious problem. Out of 5 million people, 300,000 were confirmed alcoholics. 15,000 people were dying every year from alcoholism. Profanity became common with the use of the most shocking kinds of words. Remember back then, they didn't use that kind of stuff. For the first time in the new nation, women were afraid to go out at night out of fear of being assaulted. There were bank robberies every day. And the churches were dying. The Methodists, which were the largest, were losing more members than were joining. The Baptists described the situation as a long wintry season. The Presbyterians met in General Assembly to deploy the ungodliness of the country. The Lutherans were dwindling so much that they considered merging with the Episcopalians, who were doing worse. The Episcopal Bishop of New York, Samuel Provost, had had no confirmations in so long that he concluded there was no work to do as a bishop and went and got a secular job. The colleges descended to depths never imagined. In a poll of Harvard, there was not one believer on campus. Princeton only had two believers, and only five people in the student body were not members of the filthy language society. At Brown University, they held a mock communion service. And all of these started as Christian institutions. Among college students, it was fashionable to call oneself Voltaire or Rousseau. And on many campuses, Christian students met in secret societies and kept minutes in code out of fear of persecution. So how did this spiritual depression change? Historian Edwin Orr says it was the result of concerts of prayer. When conditions seemed at their worst, in 1794, a pastor by the name of Isaac Bacchus sent out a plea to pastors in every denomination to pray for spiritual awakening. He had been influenced by a book which had been written forty years before by Jonathan Edwards. And I want to read you the title of the book, but hold on, okay? Here's the title and humble attempt to promote an explicit agreement and visible union of God's people through the world in extraordinary prayer for the revival of religion and the advancement of Christ's kingdom on earth pursuant to scripture promises and prophecies concerning the last time occasioned by a late memorial published by a number of ministers in Scotland and sent over to America giving an account of a certain concert for prayer which has already been come to by many ministers and others in Great Britain and some other parts in which they desire the general occurrence in their Christian brethren everywhere, containing... Anyway, this goes on for two more paragraphs. (laughs) That was the title of the book. But most people know the book by the first part. A humble attempt to promote an explicit agreement and visible union of God's people through the world in extraordinary prayer for revival of religion and the advancement of Christ's kingdom on earth. So Bacchus sends out this letter to all the pastors, and they respond. And many followed the example of the English churches and set aside the first Monday of every month for prayer. They were called concerts of prayer. Soon spiritual revival began breaking out. These prayer meetings exploded, starting in Connecticut to Massachusetts, and it spread to New York and then throughout the states. In 1800, on the frontier in Kentucky, 2,800 people showed up for a communion service put on in a small town by all the denominations. A lunchtime prayer meeting was started in the Dutch Reformed Church in Manhattan. An ad was put in the newspaper, prayer meeting at such and such time, and out of a million, six people showed up. Then 14, then 23, then more. Then the church was filled. Then it spread to other churches throughout New York where at lunchtime shops would close and churches would be filled with people praying. One reporter trying to report on and count up how many people were actually meeting for prayer tried to get around to as many groups as he could. Well, he could only get to 12. And at the 12, he counted 6,100 people meeting for prayer. Then it spread south, then it spread to Chicago. And the second great awakening was ushered in, which brought incredible spiritual revival to our nation. This affected the culture. The moral climate changed. People went to church. Mission societies were founded. Hospitals were started. People started caring for orphans, and orphanage began in large numbers. This is just one example where when people intentionally prayed and asked God for revival and spiritual renewal, it broke out and spread all over our country. Are we in need of a spiritual awakening today? I would say we are. Church attendance is way down. Fortunately, not in our church. Personal morality is at an all-time low. The government on every level is not only out of money, but there seems no wisdom and no common sense in the making of financial decisions. The biblical family unit, you know, husband, wife, children, is almost completely destroyed. Sex is no longer a special and sacred relationship between a wife and her husband, but is now expressed in all kinds of unbiblical and ungodly ways outside of marriage. Sex slave trafficking continues to flow unchecked through our major cities with Atlanta being a major hub. This is where young girls are kidnapped, then drugged, and enslaved. They then sell their bodies to make money for their owners. Murder, armed robbery, theft continue to advance unchecked. Internet porn grosses billions of dollars every year. Millions of our people are without jobs, many of which have become complacent with government handouts or have come to the end of their rope because of lack of jobs in their field. We've told God by our laws and by our actions that we don't want Him around. So He has obliged us and has done what He said He would do. He is withdrawing His presence and His protection He's holding back his divine wisdom and counsel, which has guided us for so many years. He's turning us over to follow the lust and desires of our own hearts and then reap the consequences thereof. All of this has opened the door for Islam to infiltrate into our society. This religion has deceived its followers into a life of oppression and deception. And while you would think our leaders would resist Islam... They embrace and welcome its followers in the name of diversity, inclusivity, and plurality. There are now 59 Islamic worshiping communities in the Atlanta area, financed by oil money and fueled by a hatred of Western immorality. And on that issue, who would blame them? And they also hate our secular values. Islamic followers are using our laws to eliminate any vestige and any remnant of Christianity from our government and public life. While most Christians are busy trying to pay their bills, raise their families, and deal with personal relationship conflicts, Islamic Muslims are slowly and steadily becoming pillars and leaders in the communities across this country. We do have a great country. And while we have all our problems, we still have the greatest country on the planet. But this experiment in government of the people, by the people, and for the people is slipping away from us. Day by day, we see our freedoms eliminated and our liberty chipped away at. Our kind of government was designed to operate with the principles of Christianity as its moral undergirding, as its moral compass. With those being eradicated, it won't be long before our form of government is replaced. You see, we need a spiritual awakening, not just to save souls from eternal damnation. And that's the most important. But we also need a spiritual awakening to save our way of life. It is slipping quickly from us. This isn't just about elections and politics. This is about the hearts of men and women and boys and girls. You see, you could vote every person out of our office, regardless of political party. And yes, in my opinion, some of them do need to go. But you could vote them all out. But it would not change much. Things will not change until the hearts of the people change. And the hearts of the people will not change until we have a true spiritual awakening. A true spiritual awakening will change the church. A true spiritual awakening will change family life. A true spiritual awakening will change neighborhoods. It will change cities. A true spiritual awakening will change a nation. Edwin Orr wrote about the Welch revival in the early 1900s in Wales. Some of the effects of it were this. Judges were presented with white gloves... They had no cases to try. There were no rapes, no murders, no thefts. The district councils had to meet over to what to do with the police. They'd been laid off. There was no business. Asked what the police were doing, the chief answered, we go where the crowds are, the churches. There are 17 of us, and we have four quartets, so whatever the church needs one, they call us. Drunkenness was cut in half. Bankruptcies increased. The taverns were going out of business. In the mines, the work slowed down. And this is a true story. I know this is going to sound funny. The work slowed down because so many miners were converted and stopped using profanity. The horses had to be taught new words. Laughter The revival spread to the United States. We're told that at Yale, over 25% of the student body was actively involved in Bible study and prayer meetings. In Atlantic City, a city of 50,000 people, only 50 people had not converted to Christ. A true spiritual awakening will have an impact. It will affect the culture. It will affect people's lives. It will affect the way people do business. It will affect the way a nation operates. A long time ago, the Lord said to the people of Israel through the prophet Ezekiel, Ezekiel 22, verse 30, I looked for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand in the gap on behalf of the land, so I would not have to destroy it, but I have found none. I think God says those words very sadly, heartbroken. I believe God is still looking for men and women to stand in the gap on behalf of the land, on behalf of our land. Men and women who will come before the Lord as prayer intercessors on behalf of the nation, pleading the blood of Jesus over our leaders, pastors, and families, asking the Holy Spirit to draw people to Him, asking the Holy Spirit to be released throughout this land to minister God's conviction about sin, Then God's grace in Jesus Christ and God's healing power in the name of Jesus. God wants people to come before him and ask. I don't know why he set it up that way, but he does. We have to come and ask. But standing in the gap is not just about prayer. It's also about building the wall. We must be willing to live the Christian life ourselves, being persons completely dedicated to Jesus Christ willing to lay it all on the line for him. Dear friends in Jesus, if we're going to stand in the gap on behalf of our country, we must not only pray, but we must follow Jesus ourselves. We must live the Christian life ourselves. The famous Welch revival, which I spoke of earlier, began when a man by the name of Evan Roberts was in seminary. During seminary, he thought he heard God say, go back to his home church and give them this message, and he wrestled with it. He finally went to the the principal of the school and said, I don't know if this is the devil speaking or God speaking, and the principal told him, I don't think the devil gives messages like this. Take a week off and go back. So he goes back and he tells the pastor what was going on, and the pastor probably just shook his head and So they had a prayer meeting, and after the prayer meeting, he he said, if anybody would like to stay, we have Evan Roberts here. He has a few words he'd like to say. And this became his famous four-point message that he said he had from God. First, confess all your known sin, receiving forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Confess all your known sin. Secondly, remove anything in your life that you are in doubt or feel insecure about. Meaning anything in your life that you think may not be of God, get rid of it. Third, be ready to obey the Holy Spirit instantly. He says, do something, do it. Don't put it off. And fourth, publicly confess the Lord Jesus. Be willing to say who you belong to and who you follow. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ and I'm not ashamed. We have been so beaten down in our culture, embarrassed because you're a Christian, We've got to stop that. Confess all known sin. Remove anything in your life that you're in doubt about. Be ready to obey the Holy Spirit instantly and publicly confess the Lord Jesus. You see, if you and I pray, but we're not willing to repent, what's the point? By the way, Evan Roberts preached that. The next week, more people came. I should say the next night. They asked him to preach the next night. Within a week, thousands of people were showing up, and this revival broke out and spread not only all over Wales, but all over the world. And it all came in response to prayer. A friend of mine, Boyd Bailey, writes the following, God blesses a nation because of its prayers, not its power. God blesses a nation because of its character, not its commerce. God blesses a nation because of its trust in Him, not its advanced technology. God blesses a nation because of its fear of the Lord, not its fear of man. God blesses a nation that loves God and expresses that love in caring for the unborn, the impoverished, the disabled, and the diseased. God blesses a nation because of His church and not the size of that nation's economy. So on this Independence Day... I'm calling you to stand in the gap on behalf of our nation. I'm asking you to join me in standing in the gap on behalf of our country. But I'm asking you to daily spend time before the Lord on behalf of our nation. Think about your children. Think about your grandchildren or your great children. You may not even have any yet. But what kind of America are they going to have? If we continue just a little further down the path we've gone, it won't be anything like you and I have known. Will you stand in the gap? I'm asking you to join with me in asking God to bring spiritual renewal and revival to the people of our land. Stand with me and ask God to intervene in the affairs of our nation. To not withdraw his presence, which he says in his word he does when we don't want him around. And ask God to help us live a spirit-filled life as a follower of Jesus Christ. I looked for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand in the gap on behalf of the land so that I would not have to destroy it, but I found none. Is that what he's going to say about us? about the United States of America. One last quote. Abraham Lincoln, one of my favorite presidents, he said this, My concern is not whether God is on our side. My great concern is to be on God's side. Oh, that that would be said about the United States of America. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would have mercy on us And give us more time. Lord, give us more time so that we can have revival and reform among us. Bring forth another great awakening, Lord. Pour out your Spirit upon our land and touch lives and save souls all over this nation. Begin with us, Lord. We pray that you would transform the hearts of the men and women of this nation. with me, and with us, and with our city, and with our state. And this we ask in Jesus' name, and for His glory. Amen. If you would like to get a copy of today's message, write to us at P.O. Box 636 Monroe, Georgia 30655, or you can order online at AWordFromTheLord.org. If you have any comments or questions, you can email Foley at foleybeach at org. For everyone here at A Word From The Lord, it is our prayer that you would be seeking a word from the Lord.